Coming to you from KFAI Studios in Minneapolis, this is the Mini Culture Podcast, COVID edition. I'm your host, Melissa Olson. This season of the Mini Culture Podcast is all about Minnesota artists making it work during a time of social distancing. The coronavirus pandemic is still very much with us, but that's not what I want to talk about right now. What's his name? What's his name? What do we want? What do we want? When do we want it? When George Floyd was killed by Minneapolis police on Memorial Day and bystanders caught on tape how Derek Chauvin knelt on Floyd's neck for nearly nine minutes, the pain and anger blasted like a shockwave across the Twin Cities and the world. This is an arts podcast. So in this episode, we're looking at how creative people are responding to all of it. Later in this episode, we'll get a walking tour from a graffiti artist who looks at a wall or a plywood-covered window and sees a blank canvas. When I see canvases like this, I want to paint it. I want to tag on it. I want to write something. I want to to put some color on this. But first, I want to take you to the corner of 38th and Chicago Avenue in Minneapolis. It's the site where Floyd was killed, and it's become a memorial. We're here at 38th and Chicago. It's about 1 o'clock, June 1st. The memorial spans at least a half a block in every direction. Filled with murals, public art, graffiti art, flowers, sculpture, and so, so many people coming to pay their respects. There are flowers that encircle this entire intersection. There are several hundred people here, and there are a number of young Native women here. They're getting ready to dance for justice for George Floyd. I came here for a jingle dress ceremony a week after George Floyd died. It was held right in the middle of the intersection, which is closed off to street traffic. I'm a tribal citizen of the Leech Lake Band of Ojibwe, and I started jingle dress dancing as a teenager at South High School in Minneapolis. I didn't dance that day. I just wanted to be there to watch and support the young women who were dancing. As the crowd chanted George Floyd's name, I caught up with Miskatus Henning Garcia, one of the jingle dress dancers who was there that day. I've been a jingle dress dancer um, since I was a baby, pretty much, once, ever since I could walk. And it's a medicine dress, and I'm Bear Clan, so we're responsible for protection and healing for our communities. And I want to ask you just a little bit about um, dancing here at the memorial for George Floyd. Why is it important for you to come here and dance at this place? Well, one, there was something very traumatic that happened here. And two, there are all these people here coming together um, in solidarity. So we want to show that we are a part of the cause and that we are a part of the brown and black community. And this affects us and we have to stand together. Thank you so much. Mm Thank you, miigwech. But even while there were marches and dancing and art in Minneapolis and St. Paul during the day, things escalated at night that first week of the protests. Selling in university, 
liquor store is on fire northeast. Charlie one to Trooper Nine, can you go above the building that's on fire? All right, Johnny, you come down to Sherburn and Syndicate. That's where the fire rigs are getting pelted with rocks. Some residents stayed up, watching over their shops and community spots to prevent broken windows or fire. Minneapolis hip-hop artist Tall Paul was one of them. Let me tell you a bit about Tall Paul. He's 6'3", hence the name. He's an Ojibwe hip-hop artist and has been performing in the Twin Cities for the last seven years. I would describe his style as a very lyrical, rapid-fire, old-school hip-hop. Grew up in a place where you had to be hard. Childhood scraps in the back of the yard. Rose said, be disaster. I'm going to be yours. Didn't want to, but I knew it was out of street love. He was only trying to make sure. I first met Paul when he was maybe 12 or 13 years old. He was starting the seventh grade at a charter school here in Minneapolis called Native Arts High School. I was his seventh grade teacher. And I remember him as a very introverted, shy, serious student who liked to just write in his notebook. Today, Paul has kids of his own and a music career. A few nights into the uprising, Tall Paul said goodnight to his own kids and joined a crew that was keeping the street safe near the American Indian Center on Franklin Avenue. That's about 10 blocks north of Lake Street, where fires erupted the first full week of protest. And there's a long history of this kind of community patrol. In the summer of 1968, the American Indian movement formed in response to police violence against Native people in Minneapolis. One of the things they did was to patrol the neighborhood that was home to the urban American Indian community in the Phillips neighborhood. They monitored police, and they worked as mediators for the community. The AIM Patrol has been operating on and off in various forms ever since. So those were the footsteps Tall Paul was following when he and the rest of the patrol encountered some white teens from Wisconsin, allegedly trying to break into a neighborhood liquor store. I sat down with Tall Paul to ask him about his experience of the uprising and why he wanted to be a part of the AIM Patrol. When you first found out about the alleged murder of George Floyd, how did you think about what you needed to do? What were some of those first actions you took? Well, my first thing was seeing seeing the video like the next morning. I think it was like four in the morning or something. And I was just mad, you know, I was just like, wow, this dude like really just killed a man right here on camera and he's probably still going to get away with it. But I just remember being stuck at home with, with the kids and um, wanting to go down there. I didn't really know what what to do, honestly. I was just figured I got to show up in order to figure out what I can do. And then as the looting and, and everything like that started becoming more progressed, I heard about the Native community protecting the Native buildings on Franklin Avenue and, you know, police in those areas. Um, so I was like, well, I could help with that. So that's what I did. I went and met up with everybody at Powwow Grounds Coffee Shop, and I just 
joined along with the community and aim patrol and uh, keeping all those businesses and establishments safe. And that's that's when we uh, actually stumbled across these four four teenagers from Wisconsin breaking into a liquor store over there. And we jumped out the truck and we we uh, subdued them and asked them where they're from. And they're like, we're from Wisconsin right away. So that that. You know, that had everybody kind of on edge and mad. We, we didn't hurt them or anything like that, you know. We just made them call their parents. Angry parent had to come and pick them all up from Wisconsin. And uh, hopefully they took it as an, a learning opportunity. When this happened, when and how did you start thinking about what your response would be as an artist? I wasn't thinking about art, I guess, you know, like I didn't honestly think about like what I would create in response to this. I think it wasn't until everything quieted down that I guess I was able to start processing and that I was able to sit down and actually write about it. Better for ourselves and for our families. Older natives stop acting like you can't understand these verses from vernaculars expressed in hip hop stanzas. Telling native youth that acting black is just a cancer. It ain't our fault that hip hop culture was the only answer. Plus, that makes our black and native youth think being black's a bad thing. I can't stand for that, my native brothers. I mean, there's definitely prejudice within the native community toward African Americans. And it's always been something that bothered me. And to see people that I know and even people that I love having prejudice toward another oppressed community as I was not sit, it doesn't sit right with me, you know. So that's me expressing that through this verse. Um, you know, there's oftentimes when a black person dies and it generates all this social unrest and this protest. And then, then and only then will you see some natives suddenly want to be like, oh, well, well, we're dying too. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, well, yeah, that that's true, but it's kind of disingenuous for that for you to say that because you don't really talk about it at other times. I can't stand for that. My native brothers raising black queens. Black and native solidarity is on my mind. Every time a black man dies, we shouldn't shout our native cries. You know we're dying too, so you should know we'll have our time. Struggle Olympics in America, everybody get in line. It's just a verse from it. Is there a second verse? Uh yeah, yeah. I I could I could do another verse. Let me see here. Riots and looting ain't the mind of the movement But fam, your eyes are diluted if you're trying to remove it It takes many strategies from peace to violence And using collective spending power to feed ours while starving or schmoozing Forget the lip service, yeah, it's time to rebuke it Find the abolished police to keep our spines out of nooses Family, polish your peace to keep supremacists oozing If they ever try to lynch you, then just promise you'll use it And if you're craving pizza, then just buy it from people That got a complexion like yours and with the mindset that's equal have to keep our colored dollars in our colored communities. Keep spending it with them and they'll keep getting immunity. And that's just speaking on the power of ownership and having have, having uh, collective spending power as people of color. We could really starve this country if we stopped spending our money with them. question yeah. one more I got one more um, 
has it been, and it's not necessarily a small question either. Um, a lot of people have commented on about how to help your kids understand what's going on at this moment. Is that something that 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 you've already sort of taken up with them? Is helping them understand what's going on? Oh yeah, yeah. I always try to have these conversations with them. Um, like, uh, you know, me and my girlfriend, our boys, they know that. The cops ain't these, like, universal do-gooders like America likes to look at them, you know what I mean? Like, I've had to have conversations with my, my son, my older son, about, like, you know, when when you get older, um, he, he's dark like me, you know what I mean? He's big like me. And be straight up, you know, I, t- I tell my kids, like, we don't trust cops. But it's not all just about our the mistrust of police and stuff. You know, a lot of it's about, you know, we got to get out here and help the community. And this is what we're doing to help. I mean, I got sober at the American Indian Center going to meetings there and, you know, got got free dental care at Native American Community Clinic for myself and my son. And you just think about everything that that area has done for you and just come back to do your part and protecting it. Paul, I just want to say thank you for for coming and sharing your thoughts tonight. Mm -hmm. It's always uh, an education and always an honor. So thank you. Yep. Thanks for having me. Mm -hmm. Miigwech. Miigwech. The verses Tall Paul shared with me, those are brand new. While Tall Paul is writing rhymes, Visual artists across the Twin Cities have been using their art to express what many people can't even put into words yet. Across Minneapolis and St. Paul, on stretches of major streets like Franklin, West Broadway, University, and Lake Street, community members and shop owners covered their windows with plywood to protect them from being broken. And those sheets of plywood, they became canvases for paintings murals, and graffiti art. But even before the plywood had gone up, and many businesses were giving artists permission to paint it, one area of the city was covered in unsanctioned graffiti. Graffiti artist Peyton Scott Russell is going to take us down Lake in Minnehaha, about two miles from where George Floyd was killed, to the city's burned-out 3rd Precinct police station. In the nights after Floyd died, This is where tensions escalated between police and protesters. It's where police fired tear gas canisters and rubber bullets into the crowd. And soon, it's where many buildings were on fire. Within a few days, nearly every remaining surface was covered in spray-painted messages. Peyton Scott Russell walked with Miniculture producer Anna Stitt for a tour of that graffiti. We're on the corner of Hiawatha and Lake, Lake Street, South Minneapolis. Behind me is the Lake Liquors that totally burnt to the ground, uh, which is totally exposed. You can actually jump down if you want. It's not blocked off at all. And you know, the artist in me honestly wants to jump down there and paint on some of those surfaces. I would love to do that. We look for spaces like this so we can, you know, beautify them in some kind of way or that aesthetic. Can you describe some of the different surfaces that you see down there? Uh, You got a a chimney standing alone. 
you got part of the, the Hiawatha liquor sign right in the middle that's collapsed through the, the center of the building. In its destruction, it's also very beautiful. Where do you want to go? Uh, let's go this way. Yeah. You know, we look for public parks, bridges, big corporations, you know, billion dollar corporations, you know, find those surfaces to paint on. Those are kind of surfaces we deem appropriate and acceptable. Of course, during the uprising, that entire area is now public. That's why you just see the graffiti and the energy to like dismantle the system. Let's burn it down and let's start over. So the people kind of claimed that area and those surfaces were just fair game to express those opinions. And it was no longer private property or, you know, morally, oh, I'm not going to write on this surface because it's, you know, it's, it's the liquor store that's owned by, you know, whoever. Nah, that, that, that whole area just went right back to the people for that moment. We're at the post office, 31st in Minnehaha, burnt down. You know, you can tell someone that hasn't used the paint before. When people don't understand like the distance or the speed of how aerosol works and then as they're writing the name they're figuring it out in real time so you'll see like really clean parts of a tag and you'll see other parts that are very faded out because the can was too far back from the wall or they went too quickly or they went too slowly and then now the now the paint is dripping can you see any of that here yeah these are several people here you can tell the hand styles, they're different people. They probably had one can and they passed it to each other. You know, you got bitch ass cops, justice for Floyd, abolish 12. Just as high as they can reach. Obviously it's, you know, about six feet high off, off the floor. And then when you look at it, you know, it's just sloppy and, you know, there's just no style to it. It's just a pure message. We as graffiti writers, we spend time on our penmanship and how to stylize lettering and how we write through graphology, you know, the, the study of, of handwriting and also use of aerosol can, which is really the apex of our culture. All graffiti writers are judged by the, our use of the spray can. Is it still graffiti? Absolutely. I mean, graffiti has so many different skill levels from, you know, the seasoned artist all the way to the novice, which we see mostly written here. So we're at Aldi's now. The windows have been boarded up with the plywood, and we see uh, a lion's face. See me, hear me, believe me. And then uh, other graffiti around it, everything that has to do with aggression towards police has been erased, redacted that message should be saved as a moment in time to describe like what happened here. That's the only graffiti that's erased. That's the system again. That's the system trying to get back up and working again. And that's one of my fears is that in time, in short time, things will be back to normal. And this event will happen again. Five years from now, 10 years from now, we'll be right back here again, just like it's gone generation after generation. The powerful, and the wealthy own all the land, own all the structures, and buy up everything. And so when you don't have those things or you're not allowed to access those resources, you kind of just want to put your name on them. It's, it's also 
explaining to the rest of us that you exist, that you occupied that space at one time. You want to just walk by the target wall? Yeah. The thing that's interesting to me about it is that it was painted over twice. Oh, was it? Mm -hmm. Okay. You want to run across? Yeah, let's go. <laughs> You're upping my jaywalk game. I'll get you to start tagging pretty soon. <laughs> <laughs> I have no criticism about this particular buff, this particular painted over, erased, because they clean the entire wall. And so that's fair game. Yeah. If we're going to go over another artist, the etiquette is to cover it completely. You don't leave parts of it and paint other parts of it. That is highly disrespectful. Can you so, just say what we're looking at? We're in front of Target. Just a nice blank wall. Of course, you know, when I see canvases like this, I want to paint it. I want to tag on it. I want to write something. I want to, I want to put some color on this. You know, it would be awesome if actually Target, especially in this location, maybe did some murals here. Why not? Look at this thing. It's just a blank canvas. What is it? 12 feet high? I think it's 12 feet high by maybe 150 feet, I would imagine. So for 30 years as a, a teaching artist, arts educator, and someone who loves graffiti and promoting it, I've been trying to work on getting what we call legal spaces for graffiti throughout the city. Walls that are non-permission and anyone at any time can just go up and paint, write, give messages. And it's always met with, you know, obviously we don't have them. I think people have a taste of it now that they see the plywood go up and then all of the, the messages that have gone on the plywood and people get to see artists painting in real time. I think a lot of people understood like how important art is on, on the main street, graffiti art. I would hope that from this point on, we can develop areas that are free and legal graffiti walls that people can paint at any time. Why do you think you got pushback before? People own space and property. I mean, even public space is owned by the government. And so they get to, they get to say what is allowed in, in that space. The same people that write beautiful letters can do the same thing on that wall without permission. Now they're, for technical terms, they're in law terms, they're committing an act of vandalism. But I love it, I mean, I love it all, I really do. Even the ugly stuff. I'm a graffiti writer, so I love to see the writing on the wall. Anna Stitt produced that audio story. If you go to those same sites today, a week, a month from now, that graffiti will be different. Some messages are getting painted over, and new messages are being written. We're going to go out the way we came in, with the jingle dress ceremony that brought people together for healing. Like I said, this, this is the healing dance. You guys want to see more dancing? Yeah. Right, let's do it. But first, let me say this. We're still in the process of naming all the things. As of mid-June, when we're recording this, the fires are out, but protests are still happening. We're all at different places of grief and anger, protest and creation. 
We're going to be here for a while. Keep listening to each other. There'll be more to come. The Mini Culture Podcast comes to you from KFAI Studios in the heart of the Cedar Riverside neighborhood of Minneapolis. This episode was produced by Nancy Rosenbaum, Anna Stitt, Ryan Dawes, Emily Bright, and me, Melissa Olson. Music by Javier Santiago and Blue Dot Sessions. Support for Mini Culture comes from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. I'm Melissa Olson. Thanks for listening. <laughs>